0: Romans chapter 1, and let's go ahead, have a quick word of prayer, and go ahead and get started and see what God has to say. Heavenly Father, just thankful to be here this morning on this beautiful uh, fall morning and just the time to come and hear what you have to say and time to worship you and just the blessing of the fellowship. We stop and say thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done and thank you for what you're going to do, we lift this up in your name. Amen. Romans chapter 1. Now, it's been a couple weeks here since uh, we've been in Romans. We started our study in Romans two weeks ago. And we did the first uh, 15 verses of Romans 1. Last week we had a uh, representative from Gospel for Asia come out and give a great update on what Gospel for Asia is doing over in India, uh, spreading the gospel of Christ. And uh, we just hit on verses 16 and 17 there just a little bit. If you haven't been with us here for our study in Romans, just a little bit of background because it sets the scene for what we're going to go through the rest of today. Romans is is a wonderful book. I love the book of Romans. And um, I will say this in any way to put down the book of Romans. It's not my favorite book in the Bible. But if I only could teach from one book in the Bible, it would be the book of Romans. There's just so much in here. There's so much theology. There's so much doctrine. Now, the problem is when we hear words like theology and doctrine, we immediately think boring. And that's not the case at all with this book. Yes, there is a lot of just fundamental truths of what we believe as Christians and understanding what God is calling us to do. But it's not the boring theology, the boring doctrine. This is such wonderful truth that's going to apply to your lives and hopefully make a difference in your life, in your walk, in your relationship with Christ. The key thing in the book of Romans is found in verses 16 and 17. We're going to start today. These are the key verses in the entire book. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That word there, gospel, in verse 16, good news. When we did our first study in Romans a couple weeks ago, we talked about how in the first 15 verses, this word gospel is repeated again and again. It's the bookends of this wonderful book here of Romans. It's all about the gospel. It's all about telling people about Christ. That's all that matters. In the whole scheme of eternity, the only thing that matters is someone someone's saved or not saved. If they're not saved, there is no other issue in the world that compares to what they're going through of not being saved. And if you are saved, there's nothing in the world that's going to bring you down to the point of discouragement and depression for eternity because you have Jesus Christ. He's there for you. Now, we all struggle. We have moments of depression. We have moments of discouragement. We have moments of being down. But ultimately, we know that Jesus is there through the gospel. That word gospel, once again, means good news. It's that good news that encourages us and uplifts us. Think about it. So often when we look back on things in life, you're going through things now we have gone through things in the past, as you look back on those things in the rearview mirror of life, be it weeks, months, or maybe years later, sometimes we look back and say, you know what, those things I got worked up about really weren't as big a deal as I thought. Now at the moment at the time, I thought it was a pretty big deal. But now in the rearview mirror of life... It's not as big a deal as I thought. Why? Because everything pales in comparison to eternity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all about the gospel. So that is what Paul is talking about here in this wonderful book of Romans. It is so logical. It is such an argumentative book in the sense of how he just builds on this through the Spirit. And and if we had countless number of hours, we'd love just to do the whole book like that. Problem is we break it up and split it up. And so today we're going to do verses 16 um, through verse 25. And then we're going to build on it from then on. But this book is such a wonderful book of just once again Paul through the Spirit taking this logical argument of the gospel of Christ and the message of Jesus Christ. So with that being said, let's get right into this and see what we're going to find out today. So we've read verses 16 and 17. He's not ashamed of the gospel. Now that word ashamed really hit me. And I really started thinking, okay, there's got to be a deeper meaning in that verse. So I looked up the word ashamed. You know what the word ashamed means? It means ashamed. Nothing deeper. Sorry. But the point is, what does it mean to be ashamed? Ashamed. What's it mean to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Well, the Bible, when it talks about the good news of Christ, it's talking about this idea of our relationship with Jesus. Well, to go one step further, when it talks about our relationship of Jesus, it actually refers to it as a marriage, that we're married to Christ. That's the way the Bible looks at our relationship with Christ. So the Bible refers to me as the bride of Christ. Now think about this for you that are married out there. Now, there may be moments in your marriage where you're ashamed of your spouse, but hopefully not too many. Hopefully, if someone comes up to you and mentions about you being married, I hope you don't hide your ring and just kind of hem haul around, "Mm, you know, I don't know. Hopefully, yes, I'm married. That's why I wear this ring. It's an open testimony of my commitment to my wife. You're not ashamed of your marriage, hopefully, not ashamed of your spouse. Well, here's the thing about the Lord, is he doesn't want us to be ashamed of Jesus. Now, it's really easy to sit here on a Sunday morning and not be ashamed of Christ. Because the vast majority of us here are all born again and saved. We just got done singing the worship songs. We had our hands in the air. We're reading our Bible. It's really easy now to not be ashamed of Christ. You know when it's hard to not be ashamed of Christ? When you're the only one at work that's saved. When everyone else is telling that story and you think, gosh, I should probably step in and say something. No, it's easier just to walk away quietly and not say anything. Or that time where the innuendos and the jokes and everything is getting out of hand, it's becoming inappropriate. Boy, the Lord's really leaning on my heart to make a stand here and say, come on, guys, we need to stop. No, it's really just easier just to walk away and not take that stand for the truth. Sometimes it's easier to hide our Christianity as to live it. And that's what Paul's saying is don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of what Jesus has done in your life. Don't be ashamed of what Jesus is doing in other people's lives. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. That's what changes the people. It's what changes the world. The gospel single-handedly has changed the world. Nothing else can compete with that. Why are we ashamed of it? Well, why is it so powerful? It takes us to that next word there. It's the power of God, to salvation. That word power is one of my favorite words in the New Testament. If you like the study of Greek words, it's a Greek word dunamis, where we get our English word dynamite. Or dynamic and that's what that word is powerful it is a powerful word it's dynamite and that's what the gospel is it's a dynamic dynamite power of what God does in people's lives it's life-changing I was over at my dad's house yesterday and we were outside doing some stuff and uh, dad lives a couple miles from a quarry and they were getting ready to uh, dynamite blow the quarry to get more rock and stone so before they did it what do they do they sound that alarm they sound that bell so everybody knows that explosion is coming why it's such a powerful explosion you don't want to be near it see it's the same thing with christianity wouldn't that be so cool if we had to go around with a warning sign because we're so dynamic and so powerful for christ Not literally blowing people up, please don't take it that way, but the idea there of being dynamic and that dynamite and just Jesus, the power of Christ. We don't really have that, do we? There's not too many times I have to tell people, be aware, powerful, dynamic Christian coming through. No, this is what the gospel is supposed to be because why is it, verse 16, it's salvation. My goodness, people are dying and going to hell for all of eternity, Salvation, this is why we are here. And this is the thing about the book of Romans. Yes, there's wonderful theology. Yes, there's wonderful application. It's a wonderful book. But the key point of this entire book is are you saved or are you not saved? And if you are saved, are your loved ones saved? Are your friends saved? Because that's salvation. That is all that matters. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the power of God because I want everyone to taste the salvation of Jesus Christ. Now, I want them to have gospel problem is in Christianity today a lot of churches and a lot of Christians we don't preach the gospel we preach morality now there's nothing wrong with morality morality is good problem is we focus more on morality than what we do the gospel hey you need to stop this oh you need to start doing this hey you need to stop that the one thing I've learned while walking with the Lord is as you get born again and saved and Jesus Christ comes into your life those things start to stop on their own because as you go deeper in your walk with Christ you realize I don't want to do those things anymore Heard a great teaching one time saying, hey, do you want to know how to let go of this, be it the drinking, the drugs, the pornography, the whatever? See, that person gets saved in Christ. Since he gets saved in Christ, the desire for those things will start to disappear. Now, it's still a battle. But the desire for those things will start to disappear. And too many times as Christians, we preach morality rather than preaching Jesus. Because once you get saved in Christ, you don't want to continue in that lifestyle. You don't. Because why? The gospel message, the good news, we're not ashamed of it. And it's powerful because it changes people's lives. Paul is the best example of this. We talked about that in the introduction a couple weeks ago. This Paul, who was then known as Saul, used to go around and collect Christians up and have him killed. So when Saul became Paul, that was the power of the gospel. Well, the thing is, we have some Saul's that became Paul's in here today. problem is we're just removed from it. Think back to when you first got saved. Think about what the Lord took you out of. Think about how the Lord changed your life. It was a powerful, dynamic testimony, witness. But as time goes on, power starts to dissipate a little bit, doesn't it? We may not have known your previous life. We may not have known what you went through beforehand. So therefore, it doesn't seem as dynamic. It doesn't seem as powerful. That's why your witness is so vital. The greatest witnessing tool that God gave you is your changed life in Christ. When people see the changes that happen in you, and how does it happen? Through the power of the gospel, the power of God, when your salvation experience happens to become born again, it's dynamic, it's amazing, and it's powerful. Now the bookends of this changed message in Christ comes to verse 17. It's faith. We have to have faith in the righteousness of God. Now that word righteousness is not a word that we use a whole lot. It's a 25-cent theology word. Righteousness simply means just to be made right. So when we taste the righteousness of God to be made righteous means have just we've been made right. I'm wrong and I need to be made right. I'm sinful and I need to be born again. I need to be saved. And that's done through faith. faith. Turn if we go to Hebrews chapter 11, please. Let's talk about this idea of faith. Because what it comes down to is I need to have faith. And this is how the system works. This is how God has designed salvation in the gospel and righteousness. It's faith. Hebrews chapter 11, one of the best chapters in the Bible on faith. That verse that we just read where it says, the just shall live by faith. What a wonderful, powerful verse. And I find that verse kind of interesting because the just shall live by faith. That's actually a verse from the book of Habakkuk. Now think about this for a second. When's the last time you either read the book of Habakkuk or heard someone quote a verse from the book of Habakkuk? Why would God choose such an obscure book to have such a powerful verse? And it's interesting, this verse is just not in the book of Habakkuk. It's in the book of Galatians, it's in the book of Hebrews, it's also here in Romans. So one verse out of some obscure book in the Old Testament is repeated three times in the New Testament. Now when God becomes repetitious, He's not repetitious because He's not good at speaking, He's repetitious for a reason. If God wants us to repeat that verse four times in the Bible, there's a reason for it. Why? Because faith is so vital. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. The Old Testament saints are the elders. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Jump ahead to verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We need to have faith. and put this all together. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's a powerful, dynamic power. That goes and changes people, brings salvation. It makes people that are not righteous, it makes them righteous. And I believe all this in faith. This is where the rubber hits the road. Because a lot of us don't really have the faith in that. We use ambiguous terms. We believe in God. We believe in a higher power. We believe that there's something bigger than us out there. So... Do we have faith in the gospel message of Christ that it still changes people's lives? This is what's happened in Christianity today. We've already talked about how sometimes we preach morality and not salvation. problem is sometimes we water down the gospel. We water it down to, you know what, God loves you. There's nothing wrong with that statement. God does love you. Or we water it down to God just wants what's best for your life. Nothing wrong with that statement. God does want what's best for our lives. problem is, We don't give the full gospel message. Jesus did not die on the cross for me to feel better about myself. Jesus died on the cross because I'm a sinner, and that sin had to be dealt with. See, too often in Christianity, we water down the gospel to, you know what, you have a God-shaped hole in your heart, and the only thing that can fill that is God. That is a true statement. I'm not putting that statement down. But the thing is, sometimes we say, you know what, you're, you're depressed, you're discouraged, you're hurting. The Lord can come in and help you and fix you and build you up. That's all true. I'm not, once again, not putting that down. But what happens if I'm not hurting? What happens if I'm not depressed? What happens if my marriage isn't falling apart? What happens if I have a good job? What happens if I have a good house? What happens if I'm doing great? I hear this gospel message and say, well, the gospel message ain't for me. My wife's good. My house is good. My kids are good. My job's good. My health's good. So I really don't have a God-shaped hole in my heart that needs to be filled. I'm really doing okay. That's why the full gospel message is, oh, by the way, you're also a sinner. Now, wait a second. <laughs> that, that's, that's not a fun thing to say on a Sunday morning. Let's jump ahead to verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. See, this, this is where Paul screwed up. If he could have just stopped at verse 17, we could just be happy today. We could talk about the good news of the gospel and how God loves you and how Jesus loves you and he died on the cross for your sins and we could just sit here and just be happy. Problem is, he had to go mention this word wrath. See, now we don't like to think of God in that type of perspective as wrath, but God is angry. He's angry at sin. God hates sin. He hates it. Now, he loves us as sinners, But he hates sin. And you know what? He hates what sin does to us. And the problem is, in the church in America, we don't get to hear a message like this too often because I tell you, Church 101 is you don't talk about sin. Talk about an attendance killer. No one wants to come on a Sunday morning. And Some of you are thinking, okay, James, it was a struggle to get here. Now you're going to tell me I'm a sinner? This is not what I really want to spend my morning doing. But the truth of the matter is to fully understand the gospel, you have to understand that there's this problem with sin. Now, what are you going to do with the sin problem? You can either take care of the sin problem, or you can cover up the sin problem. Bill and I have been praying and thinking about getting a new vehicle. And so we uh, decided to go out and start looking. And obviously as we go out to start look, we're going to have them take a look at the van, see what trade-in and all that other type of stuff is. So once you know it, that, the day that we're getting ready to go out and look for a new vehicle, we open up the doors of the van to get the boys loaded up. And there's this absolutely horrible aroma that comes out of the van. Now, we have four boys, and, and so I don't know if something crawled in there and died I don't know what happened, but it was absolutely horrible. So now, there's this aroma coming out of this van. Now, you can do one of two things with this information. You can either, one, find the source of the problem, fix the problem, and everything is better. Or two, just find something that smells better and stronger than that aroma, and then just put that in the van. Now, the same thing happens spiritually in life. You stink. I stink. And that's, not, that's biblical. 2 Corinthians, it talks about our aroma. We either have a spiritual aroma that brings people to Jesus Christ, or we have a spiritual aroma that drives people away. That's the way the Lord looked at it. And so what happens is there's a spiritual aroma in your life and a spiritual aroma in my life caused by sin, and it does not smell good in any way whatsoever. God says you can do one of two things. You can take the gospel, which therefore finds that problem, addresses that problem through the death of Christ on the cross, and therefore it's gone. Or you can cover up your aroma of sin. The problem is most of the time we cover up our aroma of sin. Well, how do we cover up our aroma of sin? Well, I know what I'm doing is wrong, so therefore I'll try to go to church a little bit more to make up for it. I'll quote Bible verses a little bit more. I'll maybe serve in the back a little bit more, and I'll try to be a better person. I'm going to do more good so that my good aroma covers up my bad aroma. You still never dealt with it. There's still that awful sin right there. And I see people do this to me all the time. I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. I'm just saying this has happened over the years for me out here is I will feel led to contact somebody who just I could tell they're not doing well spiritually. And and so you contact them and you try to talk to them and you're concerned. Hey, you know, either I haven't seen you in a while or you've just been heavy on the heart or something like that. And, And they know they're not spiritually right. I know they're not spiritually right. There's an aroma that needs to be dealt with. So what they do is this. They try to change the subject as quick as I can. Oh, pastor, I need to tell you about the message I heard the other day. Oh, pastor, I need to tell you what I was reading the other day. Okay, that smells good. That's nice. There's still this underlying aroma that we're still not dealing with. And the problem is we cover it up by reading this or doing this. And that's all good. We've got to get down to the heart of the aroma. We've got to get down to the heart of that problem. And this is what the gospel does. Is because verse 18, God has an anger. Now, some people may be sitting there thinking, this is what I don't want to hear. My God is a God of love. Your God is a God of love. My God is a God of love. My God loved me so much that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. That's love. But he died on the cross for my sins because I have sin. I've done things wrong. You've done things wrong. And to me, it's not an oxymoron of terms to say God is a God of love, but yet he hates sin. If you go up to my boys and you go up and you ask Judah, how much does daddy love you? He'll say, so much. You go up to Kenan, how much does Daddy love you? He'll put a number on it. He'll say, five. And so what I always do is I always say, how much does Mommy love you to Kenan? And I always want him to pick a number less than five. It's a little competition thing we have. My boys love me, and they know that I love them. Now, you can also go up to my boys and say, does Daddy ever get angry? And they'll say, yes. Well, what makes Daddy angry? They'll go through the list of things that they do wrong in my house. Now, I don't have wrath, verse 18, or steam is coming out of my ears, and I'm going red, and I'm chasing them around. I have anger because of sin that has happened between my boys that causes harm to them or harm to others. And so to me, that's not an oxymoron. I love them. I would do anything for my kids. I would die for my kids. But at the same time, too, I'll get upset at my kids when sin comes into their lives. I love them so much. See, this is the problem when we look at sin. We think of sin like God's just angry. He's the old man that lives upstairs, pounded on the floor to tell us to be quiet. No. He hates what sin does to your life. He hates it. He hates it that when you get involved in a sin that it's going to hurt you and your kids and your marriage and your life and your witness and your testimony. He hates it. So when it says the wrath of God is revealed, because he hates what sin does. And so when he hates what sin does, he wants to do everything he can to get that sin out of your life. Now, the problem is when we take those things out of our lives, we whine and moan and complain. This is where Christianity is not any fun because God always says no to the things that are always fun. God says no to those things that are going to hurt you. Now, we may not see the big picture, but he says no to those things that are going to hurt you. That's what a loving parent does. They say no to those things that are going to hurt you. They're going to cause problems. We may think they're fun, but they're not. Judah just celebrated a birthday a couple weeks ago. And one of the things that Judah wanted for his birthday was silly string. He loves silly string. So what happens is we get silly string. And he's Silly String's dad. I don't know. That's just what we do. So we're outside, and they were doing the Silly String, playing with the Silly String. We all get covered in Silly String. It's fun. The, the container got left outside. So a couple of days later, they're outside playing. And um, Elias comes running into the house screaming that Judah's hurt. Judah's hurt. And, and Judah then comes running into the house. And he's covering his eye, and he's just crying extensively. And we said, OK, what happened? But Judah took the container of Silly String and looked at it and shot himself right in the eye. Yeah, thanks for laughing at that um so we take him in wash out his eye do the whole nine yards etc so then dawn steps in and she makes a new rule of the urban house no more silly string now it's not that silly string in and of itself is evil but when it is misused and misdone it causes harm and pain and the same thing happens in the world today when god says no to something he's saying no because he knows we're going to shoot ourselves in the eye with it oh god come on no it's going to cause problems in your life it's going to cause hurt in your life so therefore I'm telling you no because I hate sin I hate what it does to you I hate how it harms you I hate how it brings you down so I'm saying no to that sin because there's consequences to that so when you see verse 18 the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men we can sit there and envision this God sitting up there in heaven with lightning bolts just waiting for us to mess up so that way he can just strike us down because that's God he's just full of such anger No, that's not what it is. God is sitting up there in heaven having a holy hatred of sin. And so when sin comes into our lives and causes damages and hurts us, he hates it. And he hates, verse 18, all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Jump ahead. We're going to get into this next week. We're not going to be able to get into it this week. Jump ahead to verse uh, 29. Let's talk about this all unrighteousness. What's all unrighteousness? Well, look at verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality. Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, but not only do the same, but also prove of those who practice them. You know, want to know what all ungodliness and all unrighteousness is? It's everything. It's everything that is sinful. See, here's the problem with Christianity. We have a tendency to make certain sins bad, and certain sins, well, they're not as bad. When I'm talking to somebody privately, I usually joke with them that God has that, you know, we as Christians have the big three. If you commit one of these big three, oh my goodness, I don't know if the grace of Jesus covers those sins. Those are the most horrible sins in the world. And if you do one of those sins, don't even try to come to church. Now, wait a second. We just read right here in verses 29 through 32, this is all unrighteousness. And look at this, murder, oh yeah, murder, that, that's horrible. Sexual immorality, oh yeah, sexual immorality, that's horrible. Well, whisperers, well, now, come on. I sometimes have a conversation with somebody, and we kind of maybe say a little bit too much than what we should, but don't put whispering or backbiting or being proud on the same level as murder. I mean, come on. God does. See, the word sin, you've heard us talk about this before. Sin is is actually an archery term, which literally means just to miss the mark. So if the bullseye is here, and you missed the mark by an eighth of an inch, or if you missed the mark by 18 foot, you sinned. Well, I was closer to the mark. You still missed the mark. I agree that in our today's society, murder carries a heavier weight than whispering. Sexual immorality carries a heavier weight than being proud. I agree. In the eyes of God, it's all sin. And so what we have a tendency to do is make our little levels of sin so we don't feel as bad about ourselves. See, I know my aroma is not good, but I'll just cover it up a little bit because those are those people, wow, they're worse than me. Well, when you really look at what the gospel message is, the gospel message is this idea of the good news of Jesus Christ that came down because sin is there and has to be dealt with. See, verse 17, I need to be made righteous. I need to be righteous in faith. Why do I need to be made righteous in faith? Because of verse 18, God's wrath is there. It has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with. And the true message of the gospel is Jesus loves you. Jesus cares for you. He does fill that God-shaped hole. He is there to encourage you, to uplift you, to, to be the rock, the foundation in your dark times. That is all true. But he died on the cross because you sinned and I sinned. And the full gospel message has to present that. When we as a church in America take out that gospel message, we are watering down the gospel. When we refuse to mention the word hell, and we refuse to mention the word sin, when we refuse to point people out, and not in an ungodly way, but to say, you know what, those things in your life are going to hurt you, we are watering down the gospel message. And to be honest, it's not the gospel message anymore. It's what we want to hear, cotton candy. Why does God get angry? Well, as we finish this up, there's three reasons why the Lord gets angry. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, They did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. So three things here listed that God got upset about. The first one, the truth was suppressed. Verse 18, who suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. What does it mean to suppress? That word literally means to hold down, to resist. God doesn't like it when the truth of the gospel is repressed, if you will, to suppressed and, and held down. Well, how do you do that? How do you suppress the gospel message? You don't give the full gospel message. We suppress the truth of it. Well what do we mean? God just loves you. Nothing else That's all God just loves you. Well, that's true, but we're not giving the full truth of the gospel message. God loves me and that sin has to be dealt with. God just wants you to be happy. Okay, well, what happens when I have Job moments? What happens when I go to the doctor and I get that diagnosis that's not good? What happens when my loved ones gets hurt or dies? What happens when I lose my job? Is that making me happy, God? See, we're suppressing the truth of the gospel. We're not giving the full truth out there. And what happens is if you speak that type of message of God just loves you and God just wants you to be happy, my goodness, people will come out of the woodwork for that. But that's not the truth. It is truth. But the full truth of the gospel message has to be preached part of the beauty of going verse by verse in the Bible is if we were going verse not going verse by verse it'd be really easy to say okay guys our lesson today is out of Romans 1 verses 16 and 17 and let's just talk about the gospel the good news in Jesus I don't want to do verse 18 no no wrath of God no just make you feel good see the suppressing the truth is you do not give the full gospel message of that sin has to be dealt with well what's the next one they ignored him verses 19 and 20 what did they ignore they ignored creation See, here's something that, that you got to remember as a Christian. God has never asked you to prove that he exists. Too many of us walk around with this burden on our shoulder thinking we have to prove to our unsaved loved ones that God exists. God says, you don't have to carry that burden. He goes, creation is proof enough that I exist. He so goes, just open your window, look outside. They see that. They know that I exist. Look up in the night sky. They see that I exist. Creation is the greatest witnessing tool that God has given us to know that there's something bigger than us out there. Turn if you go to Second Peter chapter 3. Let's build on this a little bit, this importance of, of creation. The thing that makes God angry is when they ignore his creation. This is one of the problems with this mindset of evolution, as evolution takes the creator out of the mix. See, if you believe in the concept of evolution, then you're here by chance. It was, it was kind of an accident. Well, therefore, if I'm here by chance and nothing made me, I have no accountability to a higher power, so therefore, if I die... Well, there's no eternal ramification. See, as soon as I believe in creation, I believe that something made me. So therefore, as the item that is made, I have accountability to the maker. Well, that's why we like evolution, right? Because there's no accountability. I just happen to be here by chance. So when you bring in the concept of creation, I'm now responsible to the creator. So that's why God gets angry is when they ignore creation because they're ignoring the creator. Well, look here at 2 Peter 3, verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. Isn't it fascinating that 2,000 years ago, when the Spirit led Peter to write this, that the Lord knew that verse 5 was going to happen, people would willfully forget creation. Isn't that fascinating? They would willfully forget creation. That they would say... God made this? No. No. And that's the interesting thing about Christianity is when we make this stand and we say we we believe in a a literal six-day creation. We believe in what they call the young earth. Boy, we're just idiots, aren't we? And so what happens is, jump back to Romans 1, verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. They're, they're so much smarter than us, and, and that's the problem. They, they look at us and say, my goodness, this is what you guys believe. And and the thing is, they look at our belief system, and, and it's gone past the point of being angry and upset. It's almost like looking at the little one-year-old learning to walk. You go up to them, I I, I believe in a six-day creation. I, I believe in a young earth. I believe in that. And they just kind of smile and say, okay. They don't even try, because it's just, they're, they're so much smarter, so much wiser. And what happens is, God said 2,000 years ago, this is what's going to happen in verse 22. They think they're wise, but they're really see that's why in hebrews 11 it says by faith we believe these worlds were formed i'm telling you right now i'm not trying to get into a debate of evolution versus creation It takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does creation I firmly believe that. And if you want to get into a further study of this, I highly encourage you. We have we have uh, materials that we can give you. In fact, even this last summer, uh, we had Dr. Baker, who is a uh, Christian uh, creationist, come out and do a Wednesday night for us. And we have that back there on CD, too. Sound guys can make it for you. And when you really study this stuff out, you really see God's hand in this. So when God says you take away creation, you take away this, this idea that I made this, because that's ignorant, that makes him upset. And I believe creation, like I said, is its greatest witnessing tool. And we talked about this last week, so forgive me for being repetitious here. But the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3 that the Lord has put eternity into our hearts. I firmly believe that every person born has something where they're seeking something bigger than them. And so when you sit there and you say, well, what about the people in Africa? What about the people in Asia? What about the people in the farthest parts of the world that are never going to hear about the gospel? I disagree with that. I believe that they get up one night and they look up and see the moon and the stars, that if in their heart they're saying, there's something bigger than me. There has to be something bigger than me, and I want to know what this bigger thing is. The Lord knows that, and I firmly believe that he's put eternity in their hearts for them to seek out. And just as we read in Acts chapter 9, there's this Ethiopian eunuch traveling through the desert, and the Lord brings Philip to this Ethiopian eunuch just by coincidence, right? And the Ethiopian eunuch just happens to be reading the book of Isaiah, and the Ethiopian eunuch just happens to want to ask questions about Jesus. Now, that's a God thing. I believe the same thing happens in the world today, that if there's somebody out there in the boonies that wants to know about the Lord, they're looking up in the sky saying, I want to know the deeper purpose of this. The Lord will bring the puzzle pieces together. I have no doubt in my mind about that. I firmly believe that he uses creation as the greatest witnessing tool that we can ever imagine. And that's why it's so vital for us as Christians to have this biblical understanding of creation. Because what happens? Well, the first one, they suppress it. The second one, they ignore it. Well, what happens next is they pervert it. See, what happens is they take creation in verses 21, 22, and 23, and they change it. They, they pervert the creation. It says there in verse 21, they don't glorify God. They're futile in their thoughts. Their hearts are darkened. They think they're wise and they're fools, verse 23. And they take the glory of God and turn Him into the image of birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So they ig- suppress the truth, they ignore creation, and then they pervert God. Uh, that doesn't happen in America. I've been to a lot of unbelievers' house, houses, and I don't see statues up in the corner that they bow down and worship to. Now, there's still religions in the world that do that. You see that in the Hindus, they have their cow, and the Buddhists, they have their stuff. Well, this image of God is perverted. But you know what? It happens today, too. It happens in America. We may not have statues where we pervert the image of God, but we definitely pervert the image of God. We change him, just like it says there in verse 23. I remember when I first got saved, I was listening to some Christian radio, and by godly they, they told me God was broke. God didn't have enough money. I don't know what happened. I just had this picture of God in beggar's clothes just saying, James, can I have a dime, please? Can I just have a dime? They told me that if they get money, the the station's going off the air and everything's going to fall apart. And I just started thinking, oh my goodness, Lord, you don't have money. What am I going to do? They perverted God into this image of being broke. The Bible says God owns the cattle in the thousand Hills. God's not broke. Or they pervert God into this image of that he's okay with everything. God just loves you just the way you are. He just loves you. And so what happens is, oh, I I don't need to make changes. Don't worry about making changes in your life because God just loves you. They pervert God into this image that he's okay with everything. Well, the flip side is they pervert God in this image that he's angry at everybody, too. He's just furious. Once again, he's just ticked. I've heard messages like that. I've seen churches like that where God's just like really mad. And he's just going to kill us all and just take us all out. That's perverting the image of God. This is why God gave us 66 books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation to reveal who he is. And so that is why it's so vital for us to study these things out, to know the image of God, because he's not broke. He's not okay with everything, and he's not mad at everybody either. And I know that because we study Genesis through Revelation. You get the full image of God. But what God was getting angry about here in verses 18 through 25 is they suppress the truth, they ignore creation, and they pervert the image of God into what they want it to be. See, when you do those things, God says no. That's when you're allowing sin to come into your life and the gospel message is that sin has to be dealt with. What happens when we do those things? Let's finish this up, verse 24. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. See, what happens is God says, you know what, that's the way you want to be then that's the way you're going to be. Now, sometimes we have a problem with that, don't we? People come up to me and say, okay, James, this is what I don't get. How can a God of love allow this? I look out in the world today, and I just see perversion left and right. I see worlds falling apart left and right. I see economies falling apart. I see nations falling apart, families falling apart, morality falling apart. And so, therefore, this is a God that's in charge of all this? No, verse 24, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness and the lusts of their hearts. God says, is that the way you want to live? go ahead and you have free will to live that way. See, free will is both a blessing and a curse. With free will, I can choose to go deeper in my walk with the Lord, or in free will, I can choose to take myself farther away from God's plan. And if I choose to take myself farther away from God's plan and live a life that is a perverted life, to live a life of ignorance, to live a life of suppressing the truth, God says, then you're going to suffer the ramifications for that. Let's finish up with this. Turn to Matthew 15. Matthew 15. Let's talk about this concept of God giving it over. God's never going to force anything on you. never going to force anything on you. He wants you to want it. And that's the beauty of the gospel message. Putting this all together as you go to Matthew 15, we're not ashamed of this message because it's powerful. It's a powerful message that brings salvation to people that aren't saved. It takes people that are sinful and makes them right with God and righteousness. And you have to mention the concept of sin to understand the full gospel message. What makes God angry, though, is when we suppress the full truth of the gospel, when we ignore his creation, his greatest witnessing tool, and then we take who he is and pervert him into something that he's not. I never fully understood the story of Moses and the rock back in the Old Testament. You remember that story the first time Moses, uh, when they needed water in the wilderness, they were dying. We talked about this a while ago. You may remember it. Um, God told Moses to go to the rock and strike the rock. And as he struck the rock, fresh water came out and they could drink out of it. Well, then later on, when they needed more water... God told Moses to speak to the rock. Well, the problem is Moses went over and struck the rock. And God got really mad at Moses, really mad at Moses. So mad at Moses, he told him, he says, you're not allowed to go into the promised land now. That was a deal breaker. And you looked at it and we said, well, what's so big a deal about that? Well, the New Testament tells us the rock is a picture of Jesus. So the first time that Moses struck the rock to bring fresh water, it shows Christ being struck on the cross, dying. And as he died, he brought forth water of salvation, the water of life. So well, the next time when Moses was supposed to speak to the rock, that shows that Jesus doesn't have to die on the cross every single time someone wants to be saved, or every time I sin, we can just speak the words of salvation, love, grace, and mercy. Lord, forgive me. We just speak to it. So by Moses going and striking the rock, that shows that Jesus had to be crucified every time. No, just had to be crucified once. But there's another aspect to that. Is if you remember the story, God's not angry. The Israelites need water, and so God just very really simply and looks calmly tells Moses to go. Just, just speak to the rock and the rock will come. Well, what does Moses do when he goes to the rock? Well, the problem is when Moses goes to the rock, he comes out and he's angry. And he, and he says all these words about them, about their complainers, and about you just, you're, just don't care. And he misrepresented God. And that's where God said, can't do that. You can't misrepresent me. The reason I bring this up is I never fully understood this until we just had a situation recently at the Irvin household. Bias and Judah were in the rooms that were supposed to be cleaning. And they weren't doing a good job. Kenan came to report on them because that's what you do is you report on the people that aren't doing a good job. So Kenan comes and reports on them they're not doing a good job. And I just said very calmly, I said, Kenan, you need to go back in and tell tell the buddies, that's what we say, tell the buddies that uh, they need to do a good job cleaning. Daddy's going to be in about 10 minutes to check on them. Said it like that. Kenan gets to the living room and since the mic's on, I won't do it the way he did, but he yells, boys, if you don't clean that room, dad's going to come in and spank you and misrepresented me. So... Guess who then got disciplined? Because you don't misrepresent. And at that moment, I had that epiphany of, okay, God, that's why you got a little mad at Moses. God just told Moses, just, just speak to the rock and water will come out. Moses goes, oh, you complainers, you this, you that. And he hits the rock. God says, that's not me. The reason I bring this up is this is sometimes what we do with the gospel message. We misrepresent God. We misrepresent him one way to we don't want to mention sin. You're, you're a good person. Just, just believe in God and you can have heaven. That's not the gospel message. Well, then we go the other way. Every single time you sin, God is just furious with you, and you better be thankful and lucky that you're still breathing. Boy, that's not the way God's represented either. When you misrepresent God, he doesn't like that. And that's why from Genesis to Revelation, he says, this is how you represent me. This is how you go be a light and a witness to me. What happens, though, when we once again suppress the truth, ignore it creation, and then pervert the image of God, God says, if that's the way you want to live, I'm stepping back which takes us to Matthew 15 here. Because what happened in Matthew 15, the Pharisees got worked up about Jesus, ongoing soap opera. Jesus would do something good and the Pharisees would get their feathers ruffled. So finally what happens here is the disciples don't know what to do. Verse 12 of Matthew 15 says, Then his disciples came and said to him, Do do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus, the Pharisees are worked up. They're, They're mad about what you said. What do we do? Verse 13, But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Look at verse 14. One more time, those three words, let them alone. Jesus said, if that's what they want to believe, let them believe it. If that's the way they want to live, let them live it. They are blind leaders of the blind. If the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Wait a second. Is God saying he's okay with this? No, he's not saying he's okay with this. He is not. When we sin, And do not have a right relationship with Christ to go and ask for forgiveness from him. It's like putting money on your credit card and not paying off the bill. It sure looks like you got away with it. But you're going to get a statement. And that statement's going to say you owe. So what happened here is the Pharisees left them alone. Left them alone? No, Lord, you have to deal with this. He goes, I will deal with it. I will deal with it. That's revelation. That's what we're dealing with on Wednesday nights. I will deal with sin. It will come. It will be dealt with. Sometimes sin is dealt with even sooner than that in our lives when we have ramifications to our actions. But God says here in Matthew 15, he also says it in Acts 14, he also says in Romans 1, if you want to live a lifestyle like that, you want to pervert me, he goes, I'll let you do it because it's your free will choice. And then we have a responsibility as Christians when we see that happening to not suppress the truth, to not ignore creation, to not pervert God, and to present the gospel message in all of its truth. And I tell you right now, and Marv, if you want to come forward here for the final song as we close up, I tell you Now, Christianity in its finest and its fullest is presenting the gospel of Christ.